Good morning again, church. Uh, we're going to jump right in today um, to, to 1 John. We've been, we've been in it for three weeks, and we're, we're picking up in chapter 2 today. And last week, uh, we talked about how significant Jesus' advocacy is for us as his people, how he cares for us, he comforts us, but he also atones for our sin, and he actually serves justice uh, for our sin. He serves the object of that justice being poured out, how wonderful that is. But there was one verse that I really didn't have the bandwidth or time to get to last week uh, in the selection of scriptures, and it was First John chapter two, verse five. I'll read it for you again, real quick. And and really, I'm going to spend the entire time today unpacking this verse and also looking at a few verses that follow it. First uh, John chapter two, verse five says this: "But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected." Man, how, how beautiful is this to know that, that God's love is being perfected in us? I mean, don't we all want to be perfected by God's love? Instead of, our, instead of our own accomplishments, our own achievements, our own pursuits of satisfaction, John says that there is a way that we are really called and designed to be perfected by God's love, that, that all of the things that feel undone and lacking in our life find their end in him who is I am, the, the one that perfects us. And he does, it, he does it through love. That's the attribute of God that perfects us. So in, in order for us to go here, we have to understand how God's love works in our lives. The love of God can only be transformative and perfecting for those who live in the body of Christ among his people. That, that, that is how God's love is received and transformative in our own lives. So we, we've looked at 16 verses so far in the book of 1 John, all of chapter 1 and then the first half of chapter 2. Can you take a guess in those 16 verses how many times the word we, us, or our is used in 16 verses? 38 times. Go check it out. Test me on it. John keeps taking us back to something so significant for us that we tend to forget, especially as Americans, that we are transformed by God's love in community. And, and though our walk with Jesus can seem mysterious sometimes because we're walking by faith and not by sight, we're, we're, we're following a God that we cannot see today, that, that could be the mysterious side of it, John is encouraging us to be free to allow our Christian walk to be more human than we can imagine. Because we're all humans that are made in the image of God, and God is the definition and source of all love and desires to perfect his love in us. He calls us to live life together. I mean, because of all those things, how do you think God's love is going to be perfected in you? It's through our relationships with one another. Love can only be expressed and known through image bearers of God. That is how we receive God's love, is through one another. Love isn't love unless it's experience. God, God has not called us to express and experience some kind of laboratory and theological love. It's a real human love, an affection that we feel that satisfies our souls at the deepest level. And this is why 1 John 1, 7 says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
And you would expect John to say, we have fellowship with God. You would expect him to say that. But what he says is, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So, so, so in other words, the best indicator that we're being perfected in love is the expression of love that flows from us. So, so when we receive the love of God, and that's our big idea today, by the way, but when we receive the love of God, the best indicator that we're getting it is love is flowing through us to others. And we're going to spend some time unpacking that today because that's how love, friend, is perfected in you. And you're made to be more like Jesus, more satisfied in Jesus, and more whole as a human. So the, the first point we're going to dig into is from 1 John 2, 7 and 8, and it's this, the old command to love with a new source of power. Let's, let's continue reading in 1 John 2 here. He continues saying this, and he's explaining what it means to be perfected in love with these verses, I think. He says, beloved, in other words, you're lovely, beloved, you are the loved ones. I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old command is, is the word that you've heard. At the same time, is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in, in him and in you, in Jesus and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So, so what's this old command, new command business he's talking about? Well, what John is doing is he's hooking us back into the Old Testament. He's hooking us back into what the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy teach. And it's this, that we're to love our God with all our soul, with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. That's part one. But part two is that it's manifest in loving our neighbor as ourself. So so that's an Old Testament idea that God gives us, that, that that's God's best design for human beings, that we're to love God with all that we are, and that, and that expresses itself for loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And so, you know, that's the old command, but, but the new command is, is the same command, but it's with a different source of power. So when Jesus is teaching his disciples in the upper room, the night that he's betrayed, the, the day before he will go on the cross, here's what Jesus tells them after he washes their feet. He says, John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. That, that's the old command, but here's the new part, just as I have loved you. There, there's the new power, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying this to his disciples, that there is only one metric, there is only one thing that you are called to do as my disciples. And if you do this one thing that I've called you to do, then every other thing that is what it means to, to follow Christ will be fulfilled in that, to love one another as I have loved you. See, that, that, that's the operative language there, that, 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 our, that our source of love is to love as Jesus has loved us. So all of the 16, or all of the 613 laws in Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy can all be summed up into this one command, to love God with all that we are and love our neighbor as ourself. And and this is where the evidence that we're actually, we actually have received Jesus' love comes from. That's the main thing. We're to look back at how Jesus loved his disciples and in turn is loving us. 
And that's the source of it all. And what you see when you really begin to study how Jesus loved, you really begin to see what, how, he, how he lived and what he was like, is you begin to see two things. That Jesus has loved us far deeper than we thought was possible, and that Jesus has loved us much closer than we're probably comfortable with. So let's just, just think about those two things for a minute. Jesus has loved us deeper than we thought we needed. Think about the, G, the people that Jesus healed in his ministry. No, none of these people really came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, can you heal me of my sin? You don't really hear that happening a lot. Now, they all came to him and they asked for restored sight, for uh, healed infirmities, you know, the ability to walk. But, but Jesus says to most of them, after he heals them, he gives them what they ask for. He says, oh, and by the way, your sins are forgiven. Go show yourself to the priest. Or your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And I'm thinking, but, but wait, Jesus, they didn't ask to be forgiven for their sin. Okay, but I'll take it, right? I'll take it. This is one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves when we think about our relationship to Jesus. And it comes from John chapter 1, verse 38. What do you want? So what Jesus asks his disciples that are following, the first ones that are following him, that he turns around and he looks to him and says, hey, what is it that you're after? What do you want? Because everyone that comes to Jesus is after something. And, and I would suggest that a lot of times we're not even aware that Jesus is loving us when we come to him. Because we're not aware what our heart is really after in life. So just pause for a question, for a, for a second here, and ask yourself this question. What is it that your heart really longs for today? If Jesus were to show up in your living room right now, just like he did with his disciples in John chapter 20, if he were to show up, he'd say, what do you want from me? What can I do for you? How can I love you? What would you say? Do you, do you know? Are you aware? Maybe it's a spouse or a, a job. Maybe it's victory over a besetting sin. It's, it's, maybe it's healing. What, what is it that you want? You don't have to be afraid of your heart's longing. You don't have to be afraid of the things that you love. But what you do need to be aware of is that the things that you're after and the things that you're seeking Jesus in, they're just the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus really wants to give to you in love. They're just scratching the surface of what your heart really needs. Sometimes Jesus gives us what we want, but he always gives us what we need. I mean, right now, love is being perfected in us through a pandemic. None of us want that. All of us need it. Right now, love is perfecting us as his church. And do you hear that? Jesus wants to love you deeper than you think you need to be loved. And, and you'll never be able to love others deeply unless Jesus loves you deeply because you cannot give away something that you do not have. The second thing we see about Jesus' love in this new command is that Jesus has loved us closer than we thought he would be willing to love us. So there's this lawyer in Luke chapter 10 who quotes the great commandment uh, to Jesus, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, okay, Jesus, I know the law. I get it. Um, and Because uh, he's asking him, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, okay, uh, Mr. Lawyer, if you just go and do this, you know, you'll be saved. You'll be great. But the man's not okay with that response. 
So then he, he takes it down a, a little bit further in, and it reveals what he really wants in life. He says, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who, who is it that I'm called to love? And then Jesus shares a story about a Jew that was robbed and thrown into a ditch. It's the, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and so there's this Jew that's He's, he's on the on the on the road from uh, Jericho, I believe, and 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 he's thrown, he's robbed and thrown into a ditch, left for dead, and and then a priest who is Jewish, one of his own people, sees him and passes him. A Levite, also Jewish, one of his own people, you know, goes to the other side of the road when he sees him. But then there's this Gentile Samaritan, this this guy that is of another race, of another religion, of another faith, that sees this Jew that's naked and bloody and poor in a ditch. And he has compassion on him, and he enters in. He goes over to the ditch. He, he begins to, 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 to wipe his wounds and to put him in an inn and to care for him. And the thing that um, strikes me with this parable as we answer this question, how am I to love as God has loved me, is that most times when we read this parable, we always think like this how can I be more like the good Samaritan? Or, hey, hey, that was pretty good Samaritan of me to do that with so-and-so or to give that money away or to, to care for that person. But, but we, we never think about it like this. We are more like the impoverished, bloody Jew in the ditch than we are the good Samaritan. And the only way that you become, that the acts of your life and the love of your life begins to show itself and true love for neighbor is when you see yourself as the naked, bloody Jew in the ditch that's been robbed and beaten. That, that, that proximity to the situation somehow changes you from the inside out. And that's why I think the Samaritan showed him mercy in Jesus' story. Because he knew what it was like to be in the ditch. He knew what it was like to be avoided. He knew what it was like to be ostracized by those that were supposed to call him friend. Jesus knows what it's like to be in the ditch, too, because he faced the cross, the ditch for all of us, so that we would know the nearness of his love. He, he comes close to us. And, and Jesus, Jesus is murdered by his own people. Because Jesus has loved us so closely, he incarnated into the flesh to love. And we have to know this, that the only way that we can love our neighbor as ourselves is to see ourselves and to see how much we are like our neighbors. To think about the, the closeness and proximity we are to who they are instead of the differences that we might think that we have. Because hate melt, melts away when you see yourself uh, in your neighbor's shoes. And this only can come through proximity and empathy and humility. You know, as a church, um, we've declared that we want to be a reconciled and reconciling body. That, that's one of our values, or in other words, that's one of the behaviors that describes who we are as God's people in Lawrenceville as New City Church to accomplish the vision of, of making disciples that live in community and on mission, like living as family together. That, that's one of the behaviors that we have to be after, meaning that we, because we are reconciled to God, because he has loved us, we pursue actively loving others that are different than us. 
This week I was talking with a church planter in Brunswick, Georgia that I helped coach who's planting a multicultural church in that city and he was filling us in on what was happening with Ahmad Arbery in February. And we're just now becoming aware of this because there was a video that was released that, that revealed the truth about how Ahmad was, was, was murdered. And uh, you know what happened to our hearts as we saw that footage as a group? Um, empathy. Because you know what? We can all relate to somebody going outside to get some fresh air, getting some exercise. But what is so hard for us to relate to is someone losing their life when they do that. And as a church, we've just said, Listen, we're going to wade into it. And if we're going to be a church that is reconciled as image bearers of God and the uniqueness that we are, the proximity to that, if you, if you can't see yourself in those shoes, it's going to be hard for you to have empathy for those that look differently than you do. It's the brokenness that's revealed all around us. Most of us couldn't imagine being hunted down for going on an afternoon run in our neighborhood. But a reconciled and reconciling church is first and foremost about being close enough to to the brokenness to feel it. So I want to encourage you to lean in when the brokenness around you surfaces. Don't run away from it. Because Jesus modeled this for us so often and so deeply in the way that he lived. And remember, we're called to love as Jesus loved us. Jesus was an innocent man murdered by the people he came to save. And so this deep love that Jesus has poured into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit leads us to humility and empathy that all image bearers of God can relate to. And here's what humility says means. We've said this since we planted the church. Humility means this, that, that whatever that situation is that you're looking at and you're tempted to be judgmental about, that the Holy Spirit shifts something inside of us where we say, you know, I could see myself doing the same thing. Or I wouldn't put it past me to do the same thing or be in the same situation. That I'm no better than that person. I'm no better than that guy in the ditch in the Good Samaritan story. And when you're able to, in in an honest way, to see that about yourself, God changes the way that we live among our neighbors. He changes us. And that's the way that Jesus came to love. So there's another part of this verse that's kind of an aside that deserves a few minutes, if I'm honest with you. And it's going to be incredibly practical and helpful. And I want to illustrate it to you from a question that I received in the form of a text from someone at New City last week. As we talked about this advocacy of the Father, uh, this brother said this, Good sermon, how wonderful that I am righteous in God's eyes and that he is well pleased with me through the spilling of Jesus' blood on the cross. He said, I hear it, I believe it, and I occasionally feel the joy because of what he did. But then there's this, the subsequent verses that talk about uh, failing and the truth not being in us. He said, I know his commands, I try to follow them and fail daily. And so he asked me this question, so am I a liar Is the truth not in me? Do do I not know him because I fail? And and here's the deal. Um, Here's what I love about this text because every single one of us have felt that way and not many of us have confronted that feeling that we have. And 
you know, don't, don't you know what that's like? It, it's, it's, it's to see that Jesus' love is being applied to us in a radical way, that he's our advocate, that he's caring for us, but we still have this sin in our hearts, and we don't know how to get rid of it, and we struggle deeply with it. Well, 1 John 2.8 in this passage is, is really helpful. He says, a new command I'm writing to you that we just talked about. He said, it's true in him, it's already true in Jesus, and it's already true in you. And here's how you can know that it's already true in Jesus and it's already true in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So what this verse teaches us about the nature of our struggle with sin as Christians is this. Is that, is that it's, it's, it's the kingdom of God and our redemption and our victory over sin is already present. It is a past tense thing, but it is not yet finished. So when we think about the kingdom of God at New City and our life in Jesus' kingdom on this earth, we use this phrase, that, that it's the already and the not yet. That the kingdom is already here, that we, that, we see, that we see signs of his redemption. We see signs and evidences of his grace on our relationships and, the, and the, the way that God is working in the world. But on this other side, we see all this brokenness, like the things that I've talked about. A, a guy that, was a, that influenced Megan and I tremendously in our church planning journey took his own life this week. I, I, the brokenness is deep and it's heavy. And what, what the scriptures are teaching us right here is that that's normal. That's how the kingdom is growing among us, and we're to grieve our sin, and we're to celebrate the victory, but the kingdom is meant to grow like this. This is Jesus' design and how long and how he's, he's growing us into his disciples. And the encouragement I want to give uh, to this fellow and also to everyone else who didn't ask the question that is asking it on a week-to-week basis is that your sanctification is going to take much longer than you think it is. And this is not a problem for God. And the more comfortable we are understanding that, uh, the, the, the more we'll receive and feel and know his love as we live on this journey. We, we can know that the power of the Spirit is alive in us because although the darkness surrounds us and it's swimming around in our own hearts and in our souls and in our thought lives, we see our lives looking more like Jesus as we stay tethered to him when we confess our sin. So, so our job and the Holy Spirit's job in us is to, is, is, to, is to pursue us in such a way where we keep dragging our hearts back into the light and letting God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and his word, shine a spotlight on our souls that we may feel his love and be changed by it. Even though you are not what you hope to be, you are not what you used to be. And this is the evidence of how good God's love is in our life. And because we're secure in our struggle with sin, as John says, we're called to test the spirit of our love. Not like a final exam when we think about tests, but more like a strength test. And you know, like you're in the weight room and you're hitting max day, right? You don't walk out and say, man, I just failed the test. What you say is, okay, my strength was this much this time. Or, oh, I surprised myself a little bit. I put 315 on the, on the bench press this time. That's not me, that's Brandon. But anyway, um, we're, we're still stronger than when we started. And we can only grow in strength as we experience failure. This is how God grows us. This is our second point of where we're going today, church. Is, it's this, that a love that can't be tested shouldn't be trusted. Here's what 1 John says, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Whoever says that he's in the light and he hates his brother 
is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides or remains in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, so here's where, here's where John's going. He's saying this, as I walk with Jesus, you know, I'm going to encounter a trying relationship with someone else, someone that I do not want to love as myself um, because of something that's happened. And I need to ask myself in that moment, do I love this person right now? And John says the opposite of love is, is hate. So, you know, do I love this person right now? God is love and I'm made to image him. Do I love this person and how I'm responding to the situation to them? And if all I can think about is the harm that I want to do to their lives, either, you know, physically or emotionally or mentally or with withdrawal, with whatever weapon of choice that you have to hurt others, my heart cannot be trusted in that moment is what John is saying. I'm walking in darkness stumbling in darkness. So, I mean, if you're a parent and uh, you've, you've had a crying kid in the middle of the night and you stumble through the darkness to their room and you trip on Legos and you scream bloody murder, this is what John's talking about right here. That that type of perspective can't be trusted because you're not aware of who you are and who God is as deeply and fully as you need to be in those moments. You're walking in darkness. But in Jesus's perfecting love, we don't have to stay in the darkness. That's the good news of the gospel. Just because you see the darkness doesn't mean that the darkness has victory over your life. The power that the Spirit has is to help us get out of the darkness through confession and repentance, through the light. So when a hatred or whatever the opposite of unconditional love for you is like, whatever that means for you, your heart can't be trusted. The darkness has blinded you, John says. Now that might mean for some of us, if we're honest, that we don't know Jesus. I mean, if hatred is always in your heart, it's a, it's a real question you got to ask yourself. But even in the momentary lapses, the only way that we get back to the light is to surrender to God's love. That, that God's love is a force that changes and transforms our lives. Listen to this quote from uh, David Benner in his book, Surrender to Love. He says this, growth in love is not an accomplishment, but the receipt of a gift. Think about that. That, that growth in love is not an accomplishment. It's not, it's not a, a test to pass, but it's, but it's evidence of receiving a gift. Love reconnects us to life. The truth of Christ's life is that life is love and love is life. There is no genuine life without love. Self-interest, or the opposite of sacrificial love, suffocates life. Life implodes when self-interest is at the core. This is why the kingdom of self is based on death. Ultimately, taking care of number one takes care of no one. For the only way to truly care for myself is to give myself in love of others. There I will find my truest and deepest fulfillment. So, so why do we hate? Why do we stop the love of God from flowing to others through our hearts? Isn't it to protect ourselves? We think that whatever we're getting ready to face is more powerful than whatever God's love has given us. It's a, it's a, it's a failure to receive the love of God, as Benner says. 
So surrendering to the unconditional love of Jesus invites us to experience a love that no one can control because its source is not found in us. Two weeks ago, the family and I were sitting around the table doing our family uh, Bible time and we cracked open the, the, the storybook Bible. And usually it's chaotic at my house, just like it is at yours. Um, but this night was interesting. Um, God surprises you sometimes when he meets you in profound ways. I flipped open the storybook Bible and the place where uh, we were at that night was where Joseph tested his brother's love. Now, let me remind you, if you're not familiar with the story, Jacob is Joseph's dad, and Jacob had 12 sons, and uh, at one juncture, Joseph was the favored son. Um, He had a special relationship with his father and a special relationship with God, and the other 11 brothers were jealous of Joseph because his father favored him. And so what they did is what any of us would do. Uh, They kidnapped their brother and sold him into Egyptian slavery. Now, if you've got beef with your siblings, could you imagine that actually happening? Well, it did actually happen, okay? And, well, because God's favor and providence were on Joseph's life, here's what happens through a series of events and providences that Joseph experienced. He becomes number two in charge of all of Egypt. So second in command to the Pharaoh uh, at the time, the most powerful nation in the world, okay? Joseph is number two as a, as a Jewish person, not as an Egyptian, um, And simultaneously, because of a vision that Joseph had, he knew that a famine was coming. So Egypt was preparing for that famine by storing up grain. They were making more food so they'd be able to prepare for the famine. And Israel did not do that. And so Jacob, you know, the leader of Israel, and and his 11, sends his 11 sons to Egypt to get grain. Well, they get to Egypt. Uh, Joseph sees them and, uh, and is, is kind of taken aback when he sees them. He doesn't reveal himself to them the first time, okay? Uh, so he sends them away with grain, and they go back, and the, the famine lasts longer than they think it's going to. And so they actually need grain again, so they go back to Egypt again. Now, this time, whenever they go to Egypt, uh, Joseph gives them grain again, but, but he, he does something different. He, he takes one of his silver cups, a valuable you know, uh, piece of furniture for him, and he, and he puts it into uh, Benjamin's bag that he's carrying of grain. Now, Benjamin uh, was, you got to know this about Benjamin. Benjamin was Rachel's other son. Uh, Joseph was the first one. Benjamin was the other one. He was, he was now the most beloved son of Jacob. And, and, and what happens in that moment, and you can read all about it, Genesis 37 to 43, is that he sends him away, and then Joseph sends one of his servants to go, to go chase those guys down. They open up the bags, they see the silver cup that Joseph had planted in Benjamin's bag, and they bring them back to Egypt. They said, hey, somebody's got to pay for this. And what Joseph wanted to see is if his brothers had changed, if their, if their love had gotten sacrificial or if it was still greedy. And, and lo and behold, Judah, who was the same brother that suggested that they sell Joseph into Egyptian slavery back in Genesis 37, that, that same brother, he looked to Joseph and he said, take me instead of Benjamin because if, if, if I don't come back home with Benjamin, my father's gonna die. He's gonna be overcome with grief. Take me. And he doesn't try to come up with some alibi. He just says, I did it, take me. And you see, you see a transformation because love has transitioned from being self-interested 
to love for neighbor, love for others, love for brother. And in that moment is where I just broke as I heard about the power of God's love being poured out through another person. Listen to this from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 5. Joseph, in this moment, could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from here. I mean, he's in the palace. He's in the the Oval Office, so to speak. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it and the household of the Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father, is he still alive? But his brothers could not answer him because they were dismayed at his presence. They were trembling at his presence because of what they had done to him. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. See, see, there's that empathy where you draw near in the moment. Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said to them the most loving thing he could ever say, I am Joseph, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed or angry because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve your life. God's love in Joseph's heart in that moment could not be controlled. He didn't care that, that he was an Israelite and Egyptians all heard him. The Pharaoh heard him. He didn't care about how bad his brothers had hurt him. All he wanted them to know is that he still loved them. And he didn't hold it against them, that he had, he had surrendered to love. That they were brothers. And the evidence of that is transformative. God's love in Joseph's heart couldn't be controlled. So my question to you is this, where in your life right now are you trying to control and govern the flow of God's love to the world? The flow of God's love to your spouse, the flow of God's love to your neighbor, the flow of God's love to your sister or your brother, your mom or your dad. Where in your life right now are you trying to hold back God's love? Because God has been so gracious, he's been so generous with us. Who are we to hold back God's love? It shows that we don't understand the nature of it. And my prayer for you is is this, that may you, like Joseph, this week, find yourself completely undone with the experience of God's love in your own heart as you think about the magnitude of how much Jesus Christ loves you. Joseph couldn't control himself because of God's love and how it overwhelmed his heart. So you say, Ryan, how do we do this? What's it look like to go from here? Well, the last thing I want to tell you is this, is that we've got to learn to live a life controlled by love. Instead of controlling love, we've got to learn to live a life controlled by love. So how do we surrender to love? Let's, let's flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at 14 through 17 just real quick here. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Think about that phrase. The love of Christ controls us. I don't, I don't control the love of Christ. The love of Christ controls me. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live, that's us, might not no longer live for themselves or control love, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, so here's the action step. Because we're controlled by God's love, he says this, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, so what he's saying here is because the love of Christ controls us and not the love of man, not the love of self, not the love of money, because the love of Christ controls us, when I relate to you and you relate to me, Jesus stands in the middle of us. We, we no longer get to withhold love to someone that Jesus has extended it to through us. We no longer relate to one another in the flesh, meaning this. As Christians, we don't relate to others through the sin that they've burdened us with. The love of Christ overcomes that, and we extend forgiveness. Seventy times seven, as Jesus said. The, the, the self-protected, isolating love of self begins to fade in our lives over time. It begins to dim. And we think about you know, growth in, in God's love, it's, it's that the, that the kingdom of darkness is dimming and the kingdom of light and love is shining brighter. Now, you know, as I, as I think about this, as a Christian, I have to surrender to that opportunity to withhold love. I, don't, I can't look at you and say, oh, David, that backstabber, or oh, Brandon, that greedy guy, or oh, Mike, that Netflix addict. As a Christian, I surrender that opportunity and I relate to my brothers in Christ as new creations. But new creations that are in process where the, the light is shining more but not fully there yet. And we relate to one another like that. Oh, Patrick, he might struggle, but you know what? He's a new creation just like me. I'm going to show him grace and love. Oh, Megan, she's hard on herself, but she's a blood-bought saint of Jesus Christ. Church, this is what living in community and loving in community looks like. We're in process, but there's no condemnation in our process as long as we keep dragging our hearts back to the light and reminding ourselves what's true in Jesus. We must learn that we live a present tense life with the power of a past tense love for the sake of a future tense kingdom. That's what Jesus has come to do, is doing, and will do through the way that we love each other. Now, four things, about, four descriptors of what a community of uh, controlled by love looks like. It, first thing is this. It's, it's, not a, it's not a sinless community, but a forgiving community. A sinless community will only be found in heaven. That's the only place you're going to find that. So if you're looking for that, you're definitely at the wrong church, all right? Not a sinless community, but a forgiving community. If we expect not to find sin in our community, we are living in a fairy tale. So you might need to ask yourself the question this week, who do I need to forgive? Who am I withholding love from and who do I need to forgive? If grace is a gift, why do we keep hoarding it? Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has accomplished all of the love that we could possibly need to love the world. Why do we keep hoarding it? Why not spend it and pour it out as an offering to the world? And let me just say this. Um, forgive your parents. It's, it's Mother's Day today. Father's Day is coming up. All of us have parents. And, and uh, I'm going to need my kids to forgive me. And I need to forgive my parents. 
You do too. If there are things that are keeping you from loving your parents and honoring them the way that God calls us to in the Ten Commandments, would you choose to forgive them this week? Maybe maybe that's how God's love needs to be channeled through you, even this afternoon, as you talk to mom on the phone or, or, uh, you know, have some chicken and dumplings with her. But, you know, we got to choose to forgive. The second thing is this, a community that moves, a community controlled by love is a community that moves into brokenness, not away from it. So whenever I become aware of my self-righteousness in my own heart is when I see something or a situation and I think, ah, I'm not going there, not getting into that one. I see that trap. And Megan has been so helpful to me as, as we've both processed through our tendencies to, to kind of hold back sometimes from living in community with others and loving others. And, um, and here's what she's said to me often. We should be mere, we should be more curious than certain about others. That, that's what a, a community that's controlled by love sounds like. It, it's, it's more curious. So don't, don't assume that you, you know who someone is just because you sense something. To be more curious and to enter in to the mystery of who they are and who they are in Christ and the journey that they're on and even their brokenness. What would it look like for you to be more curious than certain about others? I bet you'd be moving into their lives more, showing empathy and sharing the love of Christ if you were doing that. Third thing is this, a a community controlled by love is a community that assumes the best about one another. So what's it cost for you to encourage someone? Have you ever thought about that? Or have you ever been around someone that's just deeply encouraging to you? What's the cost of encouragement? Is it not pride? I mean, is it not pride? We, We would rather keep those words to ourselves and for ourselves than give them to others. What Jesus shows us as we look at him as our example is that we're to pour out love on others, to be a, to be a, a community that, that tries to outdo one another in showing honor, to, to outdo one another in showing love for one another. And that type of community would be, our church, New City Church, would be a place that people ran to, they flocked to, to be encouraged in Jesus. That's the type of community Jesus wants us to be. And lastly this, it's a community that speaks love-soaked truth to one another. So a lot of times we think that, that love is just tolerance or just overlooking people's sin. Well, if Jesus just overlooked our sin, we'd still have to pay for it. So that can't be the way that Jesus loved us. God has called us to a love-soaked speech in our love for others, meaning this. We know that because we're a body, that we're in progress in the love of God. And, and your sin is going to impact me daily. Um, and if you're limping, I'm limping. If you're sick, I'm sick. You think about, think about people that have had the most impact in your life. Is it not those that have come alongside you and spoken the truth to you in love? That's what Jesus has called us to. This is who he's called us to be. I know that we're meeting remotely now. We can't even be together. But I'm praying that God would use these words to transform us into the type of community that the world thinks is impossible to have because Jesus has loved us so deeply. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, for our church. I thank you for just the love that I've received from you and the love that I've received from others in the context of this community. God, I just pray for my own soul and for the, the soul of those in our community that we would not govern and control the love of God any longer but that Christ's love would control us in the way that we relate to one another. Lord, I pray that this word has been helpful.
because it's your word. And you promised that it would not return void when we preach it. So, Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.